Welcome to Media Roots Radio. This is your host for today, Robbie Martin. I'm going to be writing solo today. But I have a very special guest that I'm very excited to interview. And that guest is Scott Horton. Scott Horton is Managing Director of the Libertarian Institute at libertarianinstitute.org, host of Anti-War Radio for Pacifica, 90.7 FM KPFK in Los Angeles, and 88.3 FM KUCR in Riverside, California, host of the Scott Horton Show podcast from scotthorton.org, and the opinion editor of antiwar.com. And he's just come out with an amazing book called Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan. And when I first saw the book, I for some reason I assumed it was going to be like a thousand pages long and it was, you know, going to going to take forever to read, but I was actually pleasantly surprised by how dense how much information you're able to put in a book that's just under 300 pages long. Um and I I mean it, the amount of information you packed in there, you give enough of each slice of sort of what's, you know, <laughs> happened in Afghanistan. Um, and I, I just hats off to you for doing this. It must have taken you an incredible amount of time and, and energy and work. Well, thanks very much. Yeah, it took me about a year and I guess almost a year and a half, a year and a few months. I actually started it. Um, I, the plan was to write eight or nine seven or eight or nine really brief chapters about each of the wars. And then <laughs> I got bogged down in the Afghan quagmire. Really, I got bogged down, first of all, writing the getting into this mess, what's now chapter one. And then when I started writing chapter two, it just got so long, I finally at some point had to admit to myself that I'm never going to get to Iraq. This is its own book now, so I better go ahead and get it right and finish it up. So I went ahead and fleshed it out and committed to just making it about Afghanistan. Then I cut a bunch out of getting into this mess because I had a whole treatment of the Iranian revolution, the Iran-Iraq war and the first Gulf war and all that got cut to the floor to, so it could be the first section of this book. So the plan is to still somehow get back to writing um, one that has a very brief sort of just let me tell you about each of these wars. But in this one, I just went overboard and it became its own thing. Well, I'm in a way I'm glad that you did that because, uh, there are, I mean, as far as really strong anti-war writers or, um, you know, or people coming from that direction, uh, I don't think, I mean, it's, it seems like there isn't enough stuff on Afghanistan diving this deep into it and also sort of breaking apart how the rationale for the war itself is also, you know, it's not as much of a blatant lie, I suppose, as Iraq was, but... It was also based on a lot of fiction and, uh, and you know, distortion and, and false information. Um, so I'm, I'm very, very pleased that you did it. And I think, uh, I mean, I'm actually surprised no one's made a, you know, a documentary film about Afghanistan as well. I mean, in, in, from this perspective, I think that in some, it needs to be done eventually. Maybe you'll make one at, at some point. <laughs> You know, Rethink Afghanistan by Robert Greenwald was really good, but that was eight years ago now when he was trying to stop the Obama surge. And there have been other more narrow focused ones, but not really nothing like this, I don't think. And I mean, actually, for a long time, Adam Curtis is the trap, which you mentioned, I think, at least once in your book. I mean, not the trap, sorry, Power of Nightmares <laughs> was one of the only films I had seen that had sort of 
you know, shown that there really weren't that many Al Qaeda people in Afghanistan and how a lot of it was a wild goose chase and things like that. A lot of the stuff you bring up in your book, I first learned about from that movie. Um, and it's just incredible how little of this, of these hard facts come out and the public understands about Afghanistan. Well, you know, I think part of that was, it's hard to imagine a Pearl Harbor sized attack without a Tojo and a imperialist army behind it. But in fact, there was no army. All of Al Qaeda was 400 guys. They were the, the entire organization was based around being the most elite types. It was not about trying to hire as many foot soldiers as they possibly could. They had no use for foot soldiers. They were trying to, you know, get away with special missions like that, to put it in context. And so there was no army to destroy. There were only 400 guys to kill or, you know, arrest if there had been such a thing as the rule of law, you know, attempt to capture and try. And then, but so, and I'm just kind of making an excuse for the American people here. The government sure knew that. But for the, from the American people's point of view, it sure seemed like war was the right response to such a calamity as September 11th. But in fact, it was really a matter for the courts. Well, one of the things that came, comes up for me while reading your book is it's easy to, it's easy to believe that everybody in the national security establishment and the Pentagon were cynically using 9-11 to create this specter of al-Qaeda. But you bring up an interesting point in your book where you talk about how you know there was actually a conspiratorial mindset sometimes with these officials where uh, even when it came to Gitmo, that you know a lot of people in you know in that inside that system had convinced themselves that these people um had some kind of secret you know or hidden link to the al-Qaeda upper ranks but then we know that that's you know in most cases that was actually fiction so what what's your response to that in terms of was this you know how much of this was a cynical using this horrible event and how much of it was actually ginning themselves up into a conspiratorial mindset to think that there were thousands and thousands of Al-Qaeda members all over the world ready to strike the United States? Well, I think it's some of both. And it depends on, you know, which which actors we're actually talking about and how well educated they were on this. But, you know, the Al-Qaeda guys were not Afghans. They were not Pashtuns from the southern and eastern regions there. They were not Uzbeks, Tajiks or Hazaras from up in the north. They were Saudis and Egyptians and a few Chechens, I guess, um, who were in exile from their home countries. And, you know, I'm not sure how well you remember the propaganda and the, you know, the media treatment of how all this works. The government's explanation of how all of this worked in the immediate aftermath of the attack. But more or less, they used the terms uh, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban interchangeably and more or less close enough. The Taliban attacked us on September 11th. That was the idea. They were near enough to those who did that they're going to pay anyway. And so, you know, absolutely, that trickles down. I mean, there were kids who were um, not even kids. There were probably officers who invaded Iraq thinking they were getting revenge for 9-11 because to them, you know, they're not in charge of drawing the lines of responsibility, right? The, the civilian leadership in Washington, D.C., they say who's supposed to pay and the army does the making them pay. Right. But from the from the soldiers point of view, you know, I remember it's actually in Fahrenheit 451 where they show, I think, a sergeant in his bunk and he's got a picture of the Twin Towers. Well, he's in Kuwait preparing to invade Iraq. 
And that ain't got a thing to do with the Twin Towers at all. But he's going, well, whatever. I'm getting revenge against who Bush told me I'm getting revenge against, so I am. And I think that that point of view was pretty pervasive in the American public and throughout the military and probably in the intelligence services to a degree. And I think that a lot of it really was deliberate at the very top. I certainly George Tenet knew the difference well enough to explain it to George W. Bush. Uh, certainly the guys at least writing the teleprompter script at Fox News, some of them were able to know the difference. But, you know, basically the theory was, I mean, and in truth, when Bush said hand him over, they did not immediately drop off bin Laden at the nearest CIA station. They were stubborn and they had conditions, although I think they were very reasonable ones. And by the time the bombing started, really, I think within a day or two of the bombing beginning, Mullah Omar said, okay, okay, that's fine. We'll turn them over to any third country, any third country in the world, which in other words means immediate extradition to the United States. And Bush said, no negotiations. You do what I said. There are no terms, whatever, whatever. So that wasn't even good enough. We'll hand them over to Canada or Mexico or Saudi or, well, Saudi's a bad example. We'll hand them over to Jordan or anyone. Um, they wouldn't do it. And so uh, you know, I think clearly the the Bush administration from the president to the vice president, the entire national security cabinet looked at this, as Condoleezza Rice openly said, as an opportunity to carry out not just a proper war against the evildoers in Afghanistan, but whoever else need mopping up to. And of course, this is a pretty famous uh, quote, but it's in the book from Stephen Cambone's notes of his meeting with the Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, the day of the September 11th attack. Sweep it all up, related and not. Somebody call Paul Wolfowitz and ask him to come up with the best case against Saddam Hussein for this. That's, yeah, I was going to, I have a fixation on, on the neoconservatives. Um, Good, you should. But, which I think I've shared with you a bit. But uh, that's that's one of the things I'm wondering here is, um, it seems like a lot of the neocons uh, are undeniably smart enough people to know that that there weren't that many Al Qaeda and that it was mostly a myth that they were perpetuating about this threat. Um, but it was—it's—I mean, it, that's what it seems like to me. And that the lower downs, probably people in the military, you know, were maybe more convinced of it. Um, but I guess. One of the things I wanted to, I was wondering about, and I didn't see this in your book, I didn't see this come up in your book, and I've always been curious about this in my research of the neocons, is we hear a lot about the neocons and Iraq and their fixation before 9-11 and wanting to invade Iraq. But why don't we hear that about Afghanistan? Were there any prominent think tanks or papers that cooked up the Afghan invasion plan specifically, like in the 1990s or during the Clinton era? Um, possibly. I mean, I think Bush had ordered a plan for some kind of action against Al Qaeda in Afghanistan to be begun to be drawn up in the early years, although with hardly any kind of hurry behind it. Um, and then I think, you know, if you look at, uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski in the grand chessboard, I quote him in my book talking about how, for whatever reason, he's convinced himself that it's important America must dominate Afghanistan in order to dominate all of Central Asia north of there, in order to dominate Eastern Europe, in order to keep Russia out of Eastern Europe. We have to control Tajikistan or 
some nonsense. Anyway, um, but this was Brzezinski's fixation. I think the Project for a New American Century, uh, I think their attitude is reflected in Donald Rumsfeld's view, which is, you know, we're done letting Osama escape. Now let's get out of here and go ahead and pay attention to Iraq and uh, and not get too far bogged down. And so I think um, they were certainly in the driver's seat in the first Bush term there. And that was why uh, they didn't. I mean, I guess they could have had a war and made money for Lockheed and what have you in Afghanistan. But as Paul Wolfowitz put it, there are a lot more doable targets in Iraq to hit. And they had their preconceived agenda of hitting Iraq, Syria, Iran, um, Somalia and Libya and whoever else they could. Well, that's very interesting then because, it, yeah, it does seem like, I mean, I hate to put it this way, but it does seem almost like Afghanistan was a show war. In, in, in a in a weird way by the Bush administration. Like I think that's right. I mean, in the book, sorry to keep saying in the book, in the book I quote uh, the um, at least the journalism, <laughs> the claims about Tony Blair that maybe made by Tony Blair, that when he came to Crawford, Texas, just a few days later, I think on September 17th or something like that, that all anybody would talk about was Iraq. And that he actually felt like he had to intervene to make sure now when we're talking about the president and his national security cabinet, where he, he, he felt he had to say, hey, guys, we are actually going to Afghanistan first, though. Right. Because, you know, Afghanistan, Al Qaeda, Taliban, that's the thing. I mean, if you're going to do Iraq, sure. And he basically at that point started promising that, I, OK, I promise we'll do Iraq with you. If you promise, we'll at least do Afghanistan first. Are you kidding me? I mean, it sounds like I'm lying. It sounds crazy, but that's in there. You know, I, I have my footnotes to I guess that was the, the London Times or the Telegraph or something on that one. I mean, it doesn't sound crazy to me. I mean, but I could see how to people who don't know a lot of this stuff, it sounds crazy um, because I mean, I, it should be. It should <laughs> be crazy because I mean, yeah, what I'm saying crazy to the average American. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what do you mean that they did they accidentally think Saddam had done it or something? No. You know, they were happy to lie and pretend to believe that he did and say, well, you know, there are these reports about the meeting in the Czech Republic and all this kind of thing. But the CIA and the FBI and the official government view was that Iraq had absolutely nothing to do with with the September 11th attack. Well, that's that's very interesting to me because I I didn't know that about Tony Blair. But one of the things that I found um while I was doing research for this documentary film I made last year was an interview of Don and Fred Kagan. And I don't know if you heard this, but after the day of 9-11 on 9-12, they suggested basically that Afghanistan was a distraction. They they say it very nakedly. And I was surprised to hear, it seems like most neocons were smart enough not to say that out loud at the time, but they actually say that. And that they even suggest we should invade Palestine or Palestinian territories with Delta Force raids as a response to 9-11. But one of the most bizarre things in there, and I'm wondering if you could touch on the Russia in Afghanistan after um, the invasion, our, our invasion of it. Because Fred Kagan says that we should open, uh, we should work with the Russians in, in Afghanistan if we're going to bother to invade there. And I've read a little bit about you know Russia allowing us to use land or or some kind of territory to stage flights to Afghanistan and stuff like that, but I believe that that was that ended at a certain point. And I'm wondering, was there any relationship 
you know, in terms of waging the actual war besides that? And why did that, you know, that particular arrangement end? Hmm. Oh, that's a very good question. First of all, I have seen or I guess heard that clip. uh, It was from a radio show or something of them saying, yeah, that they should have the Americans should invade Palestine as a response to September 11th. And and uh, well, I think that goes to show that they absolutely the neoconservative movement already had a consensus of the new foreign policy in the post Bill Clinton era and how this was supposed to work. whether they got McCain or George Bush. Uh, I don't know what they thought they were going to be able to do with Al Gore, but uh, they did have Joe Lieberman was going to be his vice president. So that wouldn't help us. That's for sure. Um, But, you know, there's another clip that I saw of Ehud Barak, who was possibly even at that time, the defense minister. No, maybe I think he was between jobs at that point, but he was the former prime minister of Israel. Oh, is this the BBC interview? Yeah, the BBC interview where he says, uh, and this is the afternoon of September 11th. That, and then he goes down the PNAC script, the the clean break, or really, I guess what we should call the Wesley Clark script, because I don't know if there's actually a single document that names all seven countries together on one list like this, as Wesley Clark put it. But this was from the Joint Staff right after September 11th, or I guess it was the neocons. It wasn't the the military men. It was the neocons, and it was the Joint Staff showed it to him that look at this memo from the neocons, General Clark, and he was the former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. Clark was retired at that time, but had clearance to hang around at the Pentagon. And they said, look at this. And it was the list to invade or overthrow the regimes one way or the other in Iraq, Syria, Iran, Libya, Somalia, and Sudan, I believe. And um, so, yeah, Afghanistan, well, that's just a distraction. And now they all they have to do is confuse your parents for the next year and a half and get them to mistake the guy with the mustache for the guy with the beard. And that'll be good enough to get their next war. And that's what they did. It was the most cynical thing in the world. I mean, if you're the kind of person at the time old enough to to see what was going on and not really feeling like you're part of it, not on the, yeah, let's go get Saddam bandwagon and just trying to be objective, never even mind cynical about it and looking at how they twisted the facts in order to justify a policy regime change that they announced in advance. The policies regime change were looking for excuses. It was as blatant as that. And then they did it anyway. And they got away with it anyway. Oh, and then they ruined everything <laughs> by doing that. It was the worst thing. It's not just that it was wrong to do. It's absolutely the worst thing in the world. They got more than a million people killed. And they set up a train of consequences that's going to continue crashing for the rest of our lifetimes over there. Yeah, I mean that's that's amazing to me um, that uh, you know that the Bush administration would would basically put Al Qaeda and Bin Laden on the back burner intentionally, like they really ultimately didn't care, weren't that concerned about it. And you know, in my book, I actually I waste more than a page. I include the entire block quote of George Bush at the press conference because I didn't want. I originally even had. The introductory paragraph said, I reproduce this in context here so that nobody thinks, you know, but I ended up cutting that out. But I did reproduce the entire statement because I didn't want any ellipses and I didn't want anybody thinking that I had cheated George Bush and twisted his words in any way. And I left in a lot of superfluous stuff, too, you know, but just to make sure that nobody thinks I'm cheating here. It's absolutely the man's own words plain as day. And you can watch it on YouTube where he stutters and stumbles through for a page and a little 
about how I'm just not that concerned about bin Laden. Now that he's on the run, it doesn't matter. Now that he doesn't control the Taliban with his Frankenstein powers, then it doesn't matter. And I'm not, I'm truly not that concerned. Let, how do I get you to stop asking me follow-up questions, young lady? Let me explain. I really, really don't care where he is or what he's doing. And it's just incredible, but it's true. And that's March 2002. That's six months after the attack. That is, that is absolutely fascinating. I, I think people tend to forget that. I've even forgotten how soon that happened after 9-11. For some reason, I assume that was almost while he was in the heat of the election with John Kerry. As some oh, kind of yeah. knee jerk knee jerk reaction against Kerry saying, you know, Bush. And is in the clip, it's interesting to hear the reporter lady is sort of like a innocent doe, and she's saying, "Well, but Mr. President, though, don't you kind of <laughs> think that it's important? You know, she's not she's not Robbie Martin up there being as challenging as she can and trying to, you know, stick it to this guy. She's just being a pool reporter girl. You know what I mean? I don't mean that in a sex way. I just mean it in a in a perfect like she's a normal she's not she's not a critic she's just doing her job being a stenographer that's the most minimal sort of follow-up but mr president i mean isn't osama important he just steps all over her excuse me let me finish you know this kind of thing it's amazing that's i think that's possibly one of his most candid moments i mean if you really look at the entire Bush administration, that's I wonder if even his advisors or his, you know, his people on his staff were upset that he I'm responded sure in a way crazy. like that. You no, know, he once told Katie Couric that one of the hardest parts of my job is connecting the Iraq war to the war on terrorism. Holy shit. That's the exact quote. And I know it because I immediately put it on a bumper sticker with the date. That's that's incredible. <laughs> CBS News. Yeah. Well. I guess let's go back a little bit. I feel like we didn't talk enough about this idea that uh, Bush, the Bush administration actually had a plan in place to not go after bin Laden during the initial stages of the, the invasion. And it was so obvious that they were doing this that I remember, and I saved a few clips, a few days before the, in, the initial bombardment of Afghanistan, uh, I think it was Ted Koppel who said that Bin Laden, they won't send forces at Bin Laden for the next, or sorry, for three months from now, that that's going to come three months later. And I found that so incredibly strange that it almost seemed like they wanted people to sort of cool it on Bin Laden right away or something. Like they wanted the public to know that it wasn't even a priority anymore. And that, I just don't understand that. I, and also the, you know, in terms of the Taliban agreeing to give him over, that's completely omitted as well. Yeah. You know, my friend Shauna at the time said, they're going to let him go. And I said, nah, come on. They're going to, they're going to drop a 500 pound bomb on his head. And they're going to say to the world, see what we can do to you with our awesome satellites and 500 pound bombs. And they're going to make an example out of him. And she said, no, they're not. They're going to let him go. You watch. And man, oh man. And, you know, I, I guess in the book, I don't outright conclude that they deliberately let him go. But I say, well, these, these, and those are strong indications that they really thought that they would be better served if they had him as a continuing threat so that they could say, Saddam is friends with this Osama guy who somehow we didn't get. I mean, who would care about that if he was already dead? Well, that's, a, I mean, I think you're right. It's like we can't, it, it's hard to prove that they intentionally wanted him to continue 
continue being a threat, but it's. I mean, I'll even say in their defense, they dropped a fifteen hundred pound bomb, a fifteen thousand pound daisy cutter bomb on Tora Bora. And when the Delta Force and the CIA used their laser de- designators to call in B-52 and F-16 strikes, they got them. They got them. At the same time, though, and hey, those bombs are deadly. At the same time, though, they refused to give them Rangers or infantry, Marine Corps. They had General Mattis, our current Secretary of Defense, had 4,000 Marines available. And there were, I'm not exactly certain, I think 1,500 or 2,000-something Army Rangers were right there at the Bagram Airfield, which is just adjacent to Nangarhar provinces, you know, there were a helicopter ride away from joining the fight and, and the CIA and the special operations forces begged for the reinforcements and they were available and they were denied for weeks, three weeks straight. In fact, I couldn't figure out a way to write about it exactly to include it in the book, to, to frame it exactly correctly, but I'll try to describe it here. In the book Jawbreaker by Gary Burnson, the second CIA commander on scene and the guy who was in charge at Tora Bora, at least before they called him off, um, he says over and over in that book, maybe four or five different times, he talks about when he was asking for Rangers, asking for Marines. He wished that they would give them and they wouldn't give them. And then there's one place where he starts to get into it. And then it's about five lines blacked out. And the whole book is like that, where they kept the redactions from the you know, the CIA board or whatever, because they wanted to show you what all was redacted. But there's a huge section that's redacted at the part where he's complaining about not getting his reinforcements. And anybody knows that guy, somebody ask him exactly what that paragraph said. But that seemed to me pretty meaningful for what it didn't show. That they went that far to say, you know what, he can mention the lack of reinforcements and his frustration four times, but not five and not this time, not this way. Yeah, it's ab- absolutely incredible. And I think when people still, you know, perpetuate this idea that bin Laden is some kind of active CIA asset, they're missing, they're overshadowing it with a greater, grander conspiracy, this idea that he just wasn't a priority at the very, I think, best case scenario, or they deliberately let him go, um, you know, to, to allow him to be a continuing threat. And we also know the bin Laden family is very powerful, you know. He he's not the quote unquote black sheep of the family, in the ways that they claim he was. Um, you know, there is definitely some contradictions there as well. So, it would be that's worth closer examination. I don't know if we'll ever get to the bottom of it, but um, yeah, I mean, it's a very interesting story about Afghanistan. Um, I hadn't thought too much about that angle that they would let him live as a favor to a fellow member of their social class or something like that. Uh, you know, uh, I, I guess I would like to think that that wouldn't play into a decision like this. And yet who could ever justify or rationalize a decision like this either way. So in fact, that's just as plausible or maybe even a better excuse for letting him go. Right. Then we need an enemy so that we can demonize Saddam with a bait and switch. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, in a way, that's almost, I feel like, what Michael Moore was alluding to, you know, sort of you read between the lines of his movie. In a lot of ways, that's kind of part of what he's saying, is that he thinks that the Bin Laden family did have, you know, even just the fact that they were flown out, um, you know, sort of under the cover of, you know, secrecy um, and things like that. But, you know, that's a whole other rabbit hole to go down. Even Gitmo, um, 
you know, as the as sort of the place where they need to hold these, the, you know, these enemy combatants is what they called them, which was a way to get around the law, I guess, um, you know, by not actually giving them any sort of prisoner of war legal status. Um, but in your book, you say by the end of the Obama years, even the most mainstream journalists had to admit that the whole Guantanamo project amounted to a hoax. Um, you know, the word hoax is a pretty strong, strong word. And I think, you know, say a truther reading this might think, you know, would, you know, take that in a more, maybe stronger way than you meant it. But for people who might not understand this, explain why the very nature of Gitmo in the first place was kind of a PR show for the war on terror. We already discussed how the war in Afghanistan was, you know, possibly almost kind of a show war in a way. So what what would you, was was Gitmo sort of a show, you know, freak show prison? I mean, what what was the what what is you know speak more on that? Sure. Well, yeah. I mean, I think I really meant those uh, key weasel words amounted to there. Um, I'm not hiding behind them because I think that well, it's just like we talked about before about well, who all is confused about the difference between Al Qaeda and the Taliban. Uh, as we talked about before, and I think the answer is different people. You know, some people, I bet Colin Powell understood it better than Condoleezza Rice, just to pick two. Um, you know, I think uh, it, it all depends and uh, on the situation and the rank and the exposure at the time and place and everything. Uh, so Speaking of, I know one thing that happened is that whoever got arrested in Afghanistan for whatever reason, if the Pakistani intelligence just kidnapped a guy or General Dostum just kidnapped a guy and turned him over to the army, it was assumed that, well, he must be a bad guy or anyway, that's not my problem. My problem is just shipping him onto the next stage of his captivity. And so, but then anybody at the further stage of the captivity was receiving people who they assumed must be guilty of something or else why are they here? Sort of like rounding up fighting age male blacks south of the 10 in Los Angeles during the drug wars against the Bloods and the Crips in the 80s. You just, if you're not guilty, then what are you doing here kind of thing. And so then when you're a guard at Guantanamo Bay and you see that your government has gone through the trouble of bringing these people all the way across the planet to bringing them to your weird secret law semi-secret lawless prison in cuba then you assume that it must be for a real good reason and i talked to a gitmo guard well, a few different ones but one particular i remember is a guy named brandon neely who said that you know they were expecting these guys to be 10 foot tall giant massive terrorist killers and <laughs> instead they were just regular folks most of them were just regular folks a lot of them didn't even have anything to do with the taliban much less al-qaeda um, you know, they just happen to be around. They happen to be kidnapped for ransom. And I mean, one thing that's for sure is that Lawrence Wilkerson, who was Colin Powell's chief of staff, said that certainly Powell and I'm, I don't want to put words in the man's mouth, but I think that he said that Cheney and the rest of them knew they all saw the same paperwork he saw where the government was admitting to itself. The, the lower ranks were admitting to the White House that we have a lot of nobodies here, boss. What do you want us to do with them? And that they decided, let's go with it. Because, as you talked about the power of nightmares, rangers going up and down mountains, but there's nobody there. Uh, this kind of thing. They didn't want to portray that to the American people. They didn't want to admit that there were only ever 400 
we killed two and let two escape. And so now there's 200, but they're in exile in Pakistan and they're no danger to you whatsoever. Uh, we don't want them to think that. We want them to think that there are legions of these terrorists out there. And the American people were kind of happy to play along and believe, even though any of them that just looked at a globe for a minute could tell that there is no Islamic caliphate over there. It's all just the same countries they've always heard of over there. Osama bin Laden never controlled one county, much less, you know, a terror caliphate on its way here from somewhere. They had to steal our planes to have something to crash into something, for God's sake, you know? Um, but the idea was let's pretend that there's this massive force and that they're all in it on it against us and that we got to buy and sell some Lockheed products and we got to target some people that Ariel Sharon doesn't like. And we got to, you know, figure out what part of your agenda that you can accomplish by jumping on this bandwagon with these guys. And that's how it was. And you know, people say that the presidents are always just a figurehead in this kind of thing. And to a great degree, that's true. But I think people who were really paying close attention back then and, and weren't believing it at all at the time, but had a somewhat objective point of view at the time, would agree that this one was really led by the president and the vice president. Above all, they're the ones who wanted to do it. And Paul Wolfowitz was right there saying, you know, I did a study that says this is a great idea, boss. And the rest of them were there to sure help cheerlead and push it and get it done. But it was the president who wanted to do it. And this I think that's, you know, as we talked about, different than the war in Afghanistan and different than some like the war in Vietnam, where the entire national security staff. Well, and even look at what the, the deep state have did to Obama and, and to Trump now on Afghanistan. You've got to do this. You've got to do this. You can't not do it, which is, you know, I think in Iraq, it's different in Iraq. It, they were like, OK, well, I guess we're doing this. <laughs> You know, some of them, some of the generals resigned and stuff like that. But for the most part, it was, you know, jump on board the bandwagon that was really being led from the beginning by the president himself. He always wanted to do this to prove that he was tougher and smarter than his dad. Well, how'd that work out? It's just it's so amazing when you really put it into relief like that, because, I mean, how, you know, even as the tough talk that Trump goes around you know, saying all the time about terrorists, you would almost think, you know, and then maybe this is overly hopeful and I've maybe gotten conned by this, by this um, narrative that someone like General Flynn would, would have been perceptive enough to know that Gitmo was a hoax in that way that you're describing it. Yet, you know, why, why, you know, why isn't that more openly talked about in that way, even of, among the upper ranks? I mean, like if some, it seems like Lawrence Wilkerson has probably right, come out the, the strongest on that. It's a symbol of toughness against terrorists to Republican voters. You know, what are you going to do? Be give them an ACLU lawyer? No, we got to be tough guys. That's basically the what the Washington D.C. people call the optics, how they think it looks to others. You know, and so. I think it's completely stupid and horrible. And there are plenty of very macho right wing people who have said that this is completely stupid and we got to close it down immediately. But. Yeah. Um, and, and one of the, th the things you brought up, you know, several times is this conflation between Al Qaeda and the Taliban because there were few, so few Al Qaeda members actually active in Afghanistan. Um, that it's almost like they had to conflate the two because 
then it would give us a reason to stay there and keep fighting. And then that basically, you know, automatically becomes regime change at that point. But one of the interesting things that was in your book that I don't remember hearing at all um, in the news was uh, journalists or maybe it was some authors. Yes, authors Alex Strick and someone someone else contacted representatives of the Taliban after bin Laden was killed in May 2011. They did not seem to care in the slightest that he was dead or how he had died. We are fighting for Mullah Muhammad Omar. He is our emir. We have never fought for Osama bin Laden. His death does not matter to us. We will continue with our struggle. Um, it's a really fascinating admission, um, and it really does seem like the perfect illustration of how the media and the Bush administration and the Obama administration, you know, we haven't talked much about the Obama administration when we, sh- we should, some more before we conclude this, of how they propagandize the American public into thinking Al-Qaeda and the Taliban were essentially the same entity. But there were obviously clear divisions. Um, the Taliban never allowed Al-Qaeda to grow very large. Uh, they would, you know, they didn't want their power usurped. So can you explain, you know, what the actual dynamic between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda was around the time of 9-11 and how the U.S. government and media sort of, you know, perpetrated that which is basically a myth that they were the same entity, you know, or that they're yeah, terrorists and, just like Al-Qaeda is. And listen, I'm sorry because these two uh, gentlemen, I think they're Dutch and I can't pronounce their names any better than you can. But <laughs> the book is called An Enemy We Created. It's uh, this pair of journalists. And it's just absolutely an exhaustive study of the relationship between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda this whole time. And now the book Taliban by Rashid and many others, you know, talk about this, but this is the one that's, it's really, you know, goes to show. And, you know, I think Eric Margulies has said on my show for years that, you know, you got to understand it. You know, Zawahiri is a surgeon and uh, Osama bin Laden had an uh, engineering degree, you know, an advanced degree. Uh, he was the son of a billionaire. These were like rich cultured guys. And the Taliban are a bunch of hillbillies. And that, you know, it's just the same as a bunch of Washington, D.C. folk in West Virginia. They just don't respect these people and they don't treat them with respect. They just can't bring themselves to. And so that was kind of always the the tone of the relationship that like, well, hey, we're the boss here. It's our country. You're the guests. And so, you know, you're going to behave in the following ways. And they would always say, OK, OK, and then disobey. And, you know, clearly any revolutionary, as the old saying goes, becomes a conservative the moment that he wins and seizes power for himself, right? You know, the Taliban had no interest in overthrowing the Middle East and making Mullah Omar the caliph of all. They had won their revolution. They'd almost completely won their civil war, uh, but they'd certainly taken the capital city. They'd been in power over the vast majority of Afghanistan for years at that point. And the Taliban was risking it all for them. And they talk about a scene where bin Laden was summoned to meet with Mullah Omar at Mullah Omar's estate, if I remember this right, I'm pretty sure from the book. Um, So it's on Mullah Omar's literal, his home ground. And they make bin Laden wait in the dark out in the garden in the backyard. And then Mullah Omar himself comes back there, but stays like 100 feet away from him or something and says something on the order of, listen, the agreement is you're not going to do anything that's going to cause any problems. Is Do I make myself clear, et cetera, like that? And bin Laden kind of shined him on. And then there's a thing I read at the, the West Point um, 
school. It's cited in the book there where they talk about how bin Laden actually never even swore by it. That is the official oath of religious loyalty to Mullah Omar, that instead he sent someone in his place to do it so that he could on one hand say, yes, of course, I pledge loyalty if he needed to. But at the same time, he could deny, I guess, when he died, uh, he could deny that he ever literally really pledged uh, loyalty to Mullah Omar and his edicts. And so this was his loophole that he could go ahead and cause problems for the Taliban um, anyway, despite his promises to Mullah Omar that he wouldn't. And then Arnaud Debourgrave, Arnaud Debourgrave from the Washington Times, he went back to the 80s war and he knew Mullah Omar and some of these guys. And he interviewed Mullah Omar in Pakistan in the summer, in July of 2001. And he said he quotes Mullah Omar saying that bin Laden is like a chicken bone stuck in his throat. He can neither swallow him nor spit him out. And he's not exactly sure what he could do, but he was trying to allow for an international tribunal to hold a trial against Osama bin Laden for the embassy bombings that he was accused of. And he was, you know, I think trying to be accommodating. A hawk will say, oh, no, he was just, you know, stringing us along and this and that. But I think he was really trying to be accommodating. And certainly uh, Debor Grav believed that he absolutely was seething with hatred for Osama bin Laden, who was jeopardizing everything that his people had fought for uh, and and to build their regime there. And that, you know, he was no fool. Well, he may have been a fool, but he was not so foolish to think that the United States couldn't blast his regime right off of the face of the earth, which is what ended up eventually happening. And then um, ever since then, they talk about how, you know, Al Qaeda was gone from Afghanistan anyway. But then as, as you just cited in that in that part, that they never gave them a seat on the Quetta Shuri Council. That's the Afghan Taliban ruling council hiding out in Quetta, Pakistan. Uh, they have never even included Al-Qaeda members there. The Al-Qaeda members that fled Afghanistan went either to Abbottabad <clears throat> or they fled down to or fled up to uh, the northwestern regions, the Swat Valley and the northwestern uh, tribal areas where they were hiding out with the Pakistani Taliban, which is an entirely different group, the Tariqi Taliban which is an entirely separate group from the uh, Afghan Taliban. They're not even necessarily allies. And so, I mean, that's the real rub here is that even when Leon Panetta was admitting that, well, there are maybe only 50 to 100 Al-Qaeda guys. No, there are none. There are no Al-Qaeda guys. They were gone. They'd been gone from Afghanistan for years. And then, as I write in the book, for Panetta to admit that we're doing a war against the Pashtun tribal society to pacify their resistance against the government we've created there in the name of this sideshow of 50 to 100 Taliban, which he's not even being specific, right? He's acting like he doesn't know who they are or where they are or if it matters. He's not even trying to find them, right? He's just saying, well, you know, there's probably a few. But then if that is the justification for the war, that there are a few Al-Qaeda guys there, then how come they're not attacking them? How come instead they're waging, you know, at that time, they were waging this massive counterinsurgency operation against the local tribes? And this was the war that Donald Trump denounced over and over again in uh, throughout the Obama years, is that this is absolutely crazy. And in fact, I mean, obviously, he's going to say the opposite of whatever Obama says, but. 
when Obama said to Petraeus, or to, well, it was after Petraeus, but when he said to the military, we are drawing down and the surge will end on the timeline by the end of 2012 as it did, not the complete withdrawal, but just the end of the surge escalation will end by the end of 2012. Donald Trump stuck up for him and said, I support Barack Obama and his decision to tell the generals that enough is enough and we're coming home from this thing. So it wasn't merely partisan. At, at the very least, he had talked himself into believing this position that this really is the wrong war to fight. And then now, of course, he's ordered the escalation anyway, even though just like Barack Obama, we know he knows better. It's so, so interesting. I mean, the one, you know, the, the more down, watered down narrative, I suppose, is the deep state, you know, put too much, you know, too much pressure on each one of them and sort of made them flip flop or switch their positions on that issue. But well, I mean, Obama had run on a hawk. Yeah. Uh, Pardon me. The he smart had run war. for office as a hawk. Somebody edit that later. <laughs> Obama had run for office as a hawk, but he had already ordered an escalation of 25, 30,000 guys by the time they were pushing for another 30. And he really didn't want to do that. And he knew really by then that the initial 20 something thousand that he sent weren't going to do anybody any good either. The more he learned about it, the more he turned against it. But then he had to give in anyway. But anyway, I didn't want to let him off the hook too bad there because he really did run as a hawk on this issue Absolutely. as a way of deflecting from being good on Iraq. He had to be bad on Afghanistan to protect himself. Well, let's get in a little bit more into Obama, I guess, then, because we've spent a lot of time talking about Bush's, you know, gross errors in Afghanistan. Um, but it did seem like I guess on one hand, you know, I'm reading about the CNAS think tank in your book and wondering, you know, how much of an influence did that have over Obama's view on Afghanistan going in? But then on the other hand, what you just mentioned is that he actually was a hawk on Afghanistan, similar to how John Kerry was a hawk on Afghanistan. You know, they even use similar rhetoric. This is the smart war, implying that Iraq is the dumb war. Um, and I'm just wondering, you know, was that already sort of the Democratic consensus, Democratic Party neoliberal consensus in D.C. at that time? Or did that come, you know, who was Obama's advisors that sort of planted that idea then in his head? And then additionally, if you were to describe some of Obama's unique, huge missteps, um, you know, the surge being, I guess, the most obvious one. But what were what are some other specific things that come to mind for you in terms of ways that he actually escalated the war and maybe even widened its scope in certain ways, or, or is that inaccurate? But you mentioned, there's one thing you do mention where when ISIS became a new excuse to stay in Afghanistan, that the sort of um, regulations on how to conduct airstrikes was actually loosened at that point. So uh, go into some of that. All right, sure. Well, so I think that in the Bush years, it was not very loud and regular, but I think there was sort of a constant low drumbeat on the part of Democrats politically posturing that, well, our constituents all want us to oppose the Iraq war. So but we don't want to be called wimps and traitors and this kind of thing like we're spitting on Vietnam veterans. So I know what we'll do. We'll be really bad on Afghanistan. And this is something that happened all through Europe and other things, too. Uh, well, yeah, the Iraq war is the bad war, but so that means Afghanistan is the one that we should be fighting and the one that is honorable because because Osama, you know, had some association with the guys who actually launched the attack from somewhere else. 
So, yeah, I think, you know, that was a pretty common narrative. And the national security establishment was all ready for Hillary back then. And so CNAS was really created for Hillary. It was going to be her and Michelle Flournoy were going to be the ones putting the surge policy together and all of that was what they expected. But then Obama hired Hillary to be the secretary of state anyway. And he kept Petraeus and he kept Robert Gates, the Republican secretary of defense. And so, you know, he really boxed himself in. He did this to say, look, it's wartime. And yes, I'm a Democrat, but look, I've got a tough guy, Republican secretary of defense. I mean, this is really checkers politics, but you know, that was basically the thing. It's not like he couldn't have found a just as <clears throat> competent Democrat to do the same job as Gates. It was all just what it looks like. So Yes, I want out of Iraq, and that's what's good about me. But no, I promise I don't want to stop all this militarism because that's what would be bad about me, you know, to, to dumb it down, basically. That was the political calculation. So Obama took what had been sort of mumbled that, oh, Bush has diverted all the resources from Afghanistan to this war he should have never fought and that kind of thing. And he basically trumpeted that and made that sort of a big part of his campaign that we are going to win in Afghanistan and that we are going to, you know, by, and he promised early, he's going to send extra brigades right away and all this kind of stuff. And then he promised he was going to escalate the war in Pakistan as well. And I'm not giving him credit here. I'm just stating a fact that it's true that the CIA, well, the best I understand, I ain't been there, but the best I understand, the CIA actually was quite successful in killing the leftover Al Qaeda guys who were very few who were hiding among the Pakistani Taliban in the early Obama years in the Pakistani drone war. They did a lot of killing of innocent people, a lot of terrorizing of innocent civilians. I mean, just the buzzing killer drone in the sky for six months is enough to drive a little kid out of their mind, man, come on. I and mean, the whole thing is a catastrophe, so I'm not making excuses for it. But um, they really did, I think, kill off the last of the friends of Osama hiding up there other than Zawahiri, wherever he is exactly. Um, and so that was something that Obama really wanted to do. I think he ordered, in fact, on his third day in office, the CIA bombed on his direct orders, bombed Al-Qaeda, killed innocent people, didn't hit Al-Qaeda at all, killed only innocent people in their first strike. Um, that was the beginning of the Obama drone war legacy right there uh, from his third day in power. But um, you know, I think, and I talk about this in the book, that Obama really wanted to focus on that. And he wanted to minimize the, after the first escalation there of the 25,000, whatever it was, he wanted to basically go ahead like Joe Biden with what they called the more minimal counterterrorism plus training program, which is, you know, we send our special forces guys out there after the very worst enemies we can try to identify. But Otherwise, we focus on building up the Afghan army. And then, but Petraeus and Gates and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Mullen, and Hillary Clinton, the Secretary of State, all of them ganged up on him basically and said, no, dude, you're not going to do that. You're going to give us another. They were asking for 45,000, and he ended up giving, or 40,000 really, and he ended up giving them 30 more, but it amounted to 60,000 total or 65, 70,000. Something. I'm sorry, I'm getting my numbers jumbled up, but it amounted to by the time he was done, uh, one year later, it was a hundred thousand American uh, soldiers and Marines there. And this massive surge and attempt to implement the counterinsurgency hearts and minds doctrine, which was 
a total failure. All it succeeded in doing was uh, getting more Americans killed. Uh, like, I mean, 900 and no, maybe uh, what, 1,200, 1,300 or something of the of the uh, dead, the American dead in the Afghan war happened during those three surge years there under Obama. And then there are tens of thousands of other people, Afghans, killed in the war, and they achieved nothing. In fact, as I talk about in the book, and this is from a Washington Post reporter, I'm sorry, he's an Indian a guy whose name I can't pronounce, and so I can't memorize to say it to you here. Rajiv uh, Chandrasekhar, I think, right? There you go. See, you're yeah. the guy. Thank you very much. So he wrote the book Little America, and he talks in there about how the huge you know, part of the, you know, whatever the right way to say it is, some substantial portion of the surge effort went into the Helmand province where actually all the so-called experts said that we don't really need to expend any effort there. That, I mean, yeah, there's some Taliban there and all of that, but there's just Lashkar Gah and Sangin and a couple of other small towns and the rest of Helmand province is just farmland and uh, there's, you know, or, or desert and there's nothing really there to clear, hold and build. You know, the real action is supposed to be in Kandahar province. Let's go to Kandahar province, and that's where we'll win the people over. I'm not saying that ever would have worked, but I'm just saying the plan was, come on, let's go where the action is, and we'll do this big hearts and minds strategy, this giant counterinsurgency strategy. We'll win all these people over and convert them to our effort to marginalize the Taliban and bring Afghanistan to the brave new Western future and all of this stuff. And then they go out to the countryside and do nothing. And die for nothing, kill and die for nothing out there for two more years, three more years. And here's the point is that um, they knew better all along that it was just Marine Corps versus Army politics inside the Pentagon. And that by the time McChrystal got there, the Marine Corps was already surging in there. And McChrystal was like, oh, man, what is this? Oh, well, I mean, I guess. And so they just went ahead. We'll try that. And then they did their big surge into a small town called Marja, where um, they exaggerated the population, pretended it was 80,000 people. We we're going to pacify this city, basically, when in fact it was a very small little village. And the ultimate ratio was two soldiers per every one person. <laughs> some huge, it was some completely out of whack proportion of soldiers, and it still didn't work. You know, they say, oh, if only we had had more men longer, 200,000 instead of 100,000, this kind of thing. Well, in Marja, there were more Marines than margins there for a while, and they still fought our guys off. And they ended up leaving, and the Taliban's ruled that town ever since. And the whole thing was for nothing. And at least at that point, McChrystal and Petraeus called off the counterinsurgency, and they didn't even try it in Kandahar City. Marja was supposed to be the test case to then go to Kandahar, and they just never even did that. But instead, they just resorted to really the same policy again that Trump is uh, re-endorsing now. Forget hearts and minds. We're just going to kill them. We're going to find whoever resists us. We're going to kill them, even though everybody has already concluded it's a mathematical fact. I mean, you can't really deny it. The more we fight them, the more of them we create. And so they say now, oh, my God, there's more, quote, terrorists. That is anyone who would resist us. They're in Afghanistan now than ever before. Well, that's after 16 years of war. So, but we're to expect that once they start fighting now, these guys are going to get smaller in number. 
we're supposed to now believe that after 16 years of war that now there's a finite number of men who will resist us in Afghanistan. Before there wasn't. Before when we fought them, we made more of them. But now it's a finite number. And now if we can all just put enough army and marines in there to kill them, then they'll be gone. And that's really their sales pitch. That's the one they've sold. And I don't think really the American people are buying it. The poll that came out, it was before the announcement, but the poll came out and said 20% of Americans, one-fifth, want to send more troops to Afghanistan. And they're going to do it anyway. If, we don't, if the rest of us don't stop them, then they go on with the same plan. So we're going to have the same conversation in another four or eight years, whatever it is, and we're going to find that everything's just the same. Well, it raises several questions for me because it it sounds like, and correct me if I'm misinterpreting anything you've said, is that the war, you know, maybe people thought that they were fighting off, you know, the Taliban or Taliban loyalists, but it sounds like in most cases it's just fighting basically an insurgency that's not necessarily connected to the Taliban, the tribal Pashtun, uh, like, groups in Afghanistan. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, that's right. I mean, all along they've used the phrase Taliban as a catch-all. Yeah. And the truth is that, you know, much of the insurgency is led by former members of the Taliban government from back when, and then the people who've been recruited by them since. So there is continuity there. there the Taliban is part of the insurgency. But on the other hand, um, people use the term Taliban just as a synonym for the insurgency, which, you know, it's it can serve, you know, really to obscure and be a bait and switch. It's, it's sort of used to imply that we're not just talking about some guy from the neighborhood who said that's enough and I'm grabbing my rifle and going and joining the local militia. It's not that it's somehow this terrorist safe haven where terrorists at least come to or maybe come from. But it it removes the possibility that they're simply defending themselves, that we're the invading army, not the Taliban, not the insurgency. It's us. So I guess and it raises another question. You know, there's there's so much talk and so much documentation about how many external groups, you know, from outside the country came in to fight an insurgency against American troops in Iraq. But at this point in Afghanistan, how much of that is happening there? I mean, is it just mostly people who actually live in the country who are fighting off American troops or, or is it some percentage of it or what percentage would you say is, you know, external forces, you know, and they, you know, we hear about ISIS in Afghanistan now. Is that even remotely true? I mean, yeah, well, so no, that's the great question. I mean, the real answer, the first, the answer, to the first part of it before the ISIS part is that yeah, there's no Arabs around anywhere. There's the insurgency there is virtually entirely indigenous to the local population fighting where they're from. And they, you know, hide across the border in Pakistan and come back. But they are Afghans and they're fighting a defensive war. Um well, that's that's funny then, because in all the movies I've seen about the Afghanistan war, they always hire dark-skinned Arab actors, usually, you know, well, to play course, them. I mean, that's the thing, because they're trying to tie it back <laughs> into somehow defending the United States rather than attacking a country that really didn't have anything to do with attacking us. And the thing is with the Islamic State is 
that's as close as you're going to get to what you're fishing for here. Show me some real foreign fighters. Show me some real terrorists. Show me some real bin Ladenites involved in this thing. Are we really just talking about the Taliban and local tribal fighters? So here's as close as we can get to some actual, you know, bin Ladenites. And who they are is they are refugees from Pakistan. They're former members of the Pakistani Taliban. That was never enemies of the United States till, you know, we bombed them. Um, but anyway, even then, they were fleeing the Obama slash Pakistan war against them in 2010. And so they were refugees and they fled into eastern Afghanistan. And then after a time, they, you know, once there was enough of them and they had enough guns, I guess, they declared themselves rulers of this small district and declared their loyalty to Baghdadi and the Islamic State. But so they're still just local Pashtun tribal <laughs> fighters. They're just from like, you know, 100 miles up the road, right? So they're not indigenous to Nangarhar province, but you can see where they're indigenous to from Nangarhar province. So uh, that that's as close as you can get to a bunch of, you know, uh, Iraqi or, or Saudi or uh, Syrian or Libyan jihadis going, you know, Zarqawiite suicide bombers traveling there to fight. In fact... One of the ironies is, oh, and see, this was one of your questions was about Russia there. Um, one of the ironies, see, is, you know, we back the coalition, really, of the Hazaras, the Uzbeks, and the Tajiks up there in the north. Well, the Hazaras are Shia aligned with the Iranians. And they have, you know, turned up from time to time fighting in Syria on the side of Assad and the Iranians, Hezbollah, and the Badr Brigade, the Shiite militia in Iraq that America also backs. So that's kind of interesting and funny. And also, there have been reports, and this goes back a couple of years, there have been reports of Afghan Mujahideen, who were, I guess were sick and tired of being chased around by the U.S. Army in Afghanistan, who went to Syria to fight with CIA backing as part of the rebellion against Assad there. Is so in terms of... Does that have anything to do with Al Nusra? About, I'm sorry. Does that have anything to do with Al Nusra? Is that totally yeah, unrelated? Yeah. yeah. Or I don't know, fighting directly for Al Nusra, but certainly fighting on Al Nusra's side there. Yeah. Okay. Some Afghan Mujahideen who, you know, fighting. In other words, just as in Iraq, you know, where the Mujahideen were the the bad guys in the America was using drones. Even after Obama pulled out of there, he's using drones to chase them across the border into Syria, where they could be useful. That was that was how we call it. We were we were making fun of this in in uh, 2011 and 12 on my show that, you know, look, Obama's stepping up drone strikes against Al Qaeda in Iraq, Al Qaeda in Iraq, bad Al Qaeda in Iraq in Syria. Perfectly good. And that was the Obama policy at the time, carried all the way through to the rise of the Islamic State, the place it went from a group to a place. But anyway, these locals claiming ISIS. See, now check out the bait and switch here. Um. The safe haven myth all this time has been that if America ever leaves, then someday Al-Qaeda could come back to Afghanistan. And then they will use their magic porthole to Boston Logan Airport from there <laughs> to uh, crash into your towers again. Right. They won't have to find engineering students studying in Germany, you know, who can get a, a tourist visa or whatever. They'll, they'll just they'll fly from Afghanistan, the farthest place you can get from anywhere directly to the U.S. and kill us. That's the safe haven myth. That's the way they portray it, that someday Al-Qaeda could come back. But Osama's dead now. 
and the threat, the safe haven threat, and and not just Osama, but as I said, the CIA killed a lot of Al Qaeda guys hiding in Pakistan in the early Obama years. There, there's nobody left to come back. But so, oh well, don't worry. We'll just go ahead and play along with these kooks calling themselves ISIS in Afghanistan, and we'll say, oh look, we don't even need to worry about actual Bin Ladenite Arab terrorists hiding in Pakistan ever coming back to Afghanistan. Here we have an international terrorist group brand name right here, and that's enough. So this has been, you've heard about, they dropped the Moab bomb and they're sending army rangers and army rangers are dying. They're dying in the fight. Oh, and I'm sorry, Green Berets is what I meant to say, uh, special forces. And they're dying fighting in Nangarhar province. And uh, that's who they're fighting against is this group. And in fact, um, and I, I have all the citations in my book, when these guys first came from Pakistan, and I think this may have been before they declared themselves the Islamic State, although it may have been after. The Afghan government, and this may or may not include the CIA, I don't know, but the Afghan government backed them and supported them as revenge against the Pakistanis for supporting the Afghan Taliban. We'll support these refugees of the Pakistani Taliban against you. How do you like that? And then they thought also maybe they could use them against the Afghan Taliban. So the Afghan government that we support supported the rise of this group and armed them and whatever, gave them whatever support. And now they're the so-called Islamic State enemy that we got to fight. And that's all just since 2010. This is all just since the Obama surge that this has happened. The consequences of Obama's, the PAC side of Obama's AFPAC war. Oh, man. I mean, it's, it's so, it's just so depressing to think about, you know, how, you know, obviously, why are we still there? I mean, if we look at this from an imperialism angle and a sort of a classic imperialism angle, you know, there's, there's resources there, but, you know, how, in, in your mind, I guess, touch on how does some of that tie into why we're still there? Uh, when it when when you hear about you know the vast amounts of rare earth minerals that are you know somehow in Afghanistan um, or you know the amount of opium that that comes out of there, um, it's it's it seems awfully opaque. There's not uh, you know very much documentation about that, but um, I guess what well, is your opinion Russia on thing, it? I never answered your Russia question. Oh yeah, either. sorry. Yeah, no. Go try try doing all that and and combine with that that question. I can just don't let me forget, but I'll try not to. Um, I know I, I do go on way too long about each of these things. Um, Putin was the first guy to call George Bush on September 11th and say, "I'm absolutely at your disposal," and he had to fight a real fight against the militarists and his government and everybody to the right of him who said, "What the hell are you doing?" And he said, "We're going to take this opportunity to try to make friends with the Americans." And they gave us access to their airspace. And in fact, I guess they had enough influence that he could go ahead and speak for the governments of Kazakhstan and Tajikistan and just say, you may have access to our bases there and and in order to stage your war. And I'm not exactly sure the degree to which they actually took him up on that of, of literally going to Russian bases. I think they did in in uh, uh, maybe in Uzbekistan or something. I'm trying to remember. But anyway, he certainly offered and he certainly uh, gave access to his airspace. And then I'm not sure at which point it ended. You asked when it ended the first time. And I really don't know. I think you're right, though, that it was only for the first few years. And then it must they have had ended. their supply route set up through Pakistan. Yeah. But then during the AFPAC war, the Americans bombed a bunch of Pakistani soldiers who were back in the Afghan Taliban on the border. And 
the Pakistanis in response allowed whichever group it was, I forget now, maybe the Haqqanis, to attack the American supply routes and burn a bunch of trucks and all kinds of things. And then they shut down the supply route from Karachi through the Khyber Pass to support the surge from uh, in two th- for the, virtually the whole year of 2012. And the Russians said, okay, you can use our route and reopened up the northern route and allowed the Americans to do that. Because the Russian interest, at least this whole time, has been in helping to support. They placed their bet on the American-backed government in Kabul. This is what stands between us and these Mujahideen, Mujahideen jihadi guys that they stand on the other side of. We back the side that they always back. And this is why they've been happy to help us support the government this whole time. And now I think that it's been said that they have less faith the Americans mean to really succeed and see this through, and so they're making they're placing other bets. But first, I would point out, uh, as former Ambassador Dan Simpson said, they're really backing the Tajik army, and they're saying, well, we got Tajikistan as a buffer state still, and we're going to use them to keep these guys out. We're going to rely on our relationship with them first and our relationship with Kabul second, or at least elevate their cooperation with Tajikistan for those reasons. And then um, there's, you know, and anybody can look at the reports all the time. The Americans have sanctions against Russia. So they go to the Indians and they say, hey, India, will you buy a bunch of helicopters from Russia for us and give them to the government in Kabul? And India says, yeah, sure. And then the Russians say, yeah, sure, and sell the helicopters. And that's what they've been flying around the Afghan Air Force there now. Um, their national air force and, um, and, uh, there's plenty of reports of the Russian government all this time, I believe certainly here and there and recently, including recently, uh, sending guns and, and other equipment and maybe helping with training. And I don't know, I don't know about training, certainly sending guns and equipment, uh, and aid to the Afghan police forces, to the American government side. They've been on our side this whole time. We've been fighting on their side. We're the ones, the USA is the ones who switched sides in the 1980s war and took the former Soviet side against the Mujahideen who fought against them. And that's the side that, you know, that's more or less, that oversimplifies it a little bit. But that is more or less the role that we've been playing in this thing. And so now you hear all these accusations that Russia is backing the Taliban. There's just no reason to believe that that's true. And in fact, indication, a strong indication that the next six times you hear this, it's also going to be not true, is that when they originally started claiming this, the generals, and I have the quote in the book, but it's more or less, he says, well, you know, I think there might be reason to believe that probably the Russians would consider helping arm the Taliban if they thought they might. Some kind of Hillary Clinton must have wrote the general's line for him to come up with that nonsense uh, hiding behind. Like, who's going to hold them accountable anyway? Just lie. Right. Is this they a Trump appointee or is this who, which general is this? Who said well, that? it's um, Do you remember? I'm trying to remember. I think it was Dun. No, it wasn't Dumford. It was uh, you know who it was. Uh, well, off the top of my head, I'm pretty sure it was the head of NATO. No, it wasn't. It wasn't Scarborough. Well, I'm sorry. You caught me off guard, but it was a. Oh, you know what? I think it was Nicholson himself, the guy in charge of the current Afghan war, I think was the one who did it. Okay. And and you can read about this in Reuters anyway. I'll defer to they have the verbatim there. Idris Ahmed, I think is his name, who Idris something does good stuff for Reuters there. And and here's here's the real point is that about a week and a half after the original claims about this, there was a lieutenant general who testified, a two star 
who testified before the Senate. And he said, well, Senator, no, I can't say I've seen any evidence of that at all. Whatever, basically admitting it's not true. And then if you look, the CNN did a huge report. Oh my God, Russia supplying the Taliban. Look at our proof. It's a video. And then if you actually, you first of all, you watch the video and it's, yes, yeah, some Taliban with some weapons. I mean, you say they're Taliban. I don't even know they're Taliban, but you say they are and they got some weapons. Okay. But then if you read the article, the only actual weapons expert that they cite says this video means nothing. And, you know, <laughs> guns are for sale on the market. There's a thing called a market CNN reporters. And there's nothing to say that these came directly from Russia at all, much less the Soviet government on some Putinist plot to undermine America by backing the Taliban. It's just nothing. And CNN ran with it. I mean, we're talking about a quarter baked story, not even. And uh, so that is the quality so far. You know, the the lieutenant general denounces his boss and CNN runs nonsense that even, you know, right wing military sites debunk as clownish and ridiculous. Um, so the next few times they tell you Russia is working against us in um, in uh, Afghanistan, you might at least find reason for a pinch of salt there. Yeah, I, f- I completely forgot about that um, new bit of propaganda they were trying to throw out there. And now the resources, you can't have them. So I think uh, just presuming the rationality of the American empire at all, they know they can't have the resources, but maybe they're worried. And I think this comes up from, this came up during the Obama surge in the New York times, some excuse making by Petraeus. And it's come up recently in, uh, Trump's aides trying to talk him into staying in Afghanistan is that there's all this lithium and gold and whatever, copper and whatever there. Uh, but the thing is, you need security. You need huge amounts of capital investment for projects like that. And nobody, I mean, I guess not even governments, not even the U.S. government, will pony up the kind of money that it takes to really develop a mine and to develop, they need railroads and highways and all kinds, they're landlocked in the middle of Asia in bad lands. And there's, and there's fighters of all descriptions everywhere. So there's just, it's just impossible to think that the infrastructure for developing mines and transporting the goodies out of the country could ever possibly be finagled there in forever. And, you know, you can read good journalism about this, about how only what they call the adventure capitalists, kind of these wild billionaires that go out there adventure seeking and stuff. They're the only ones who've even bothered looking at it. And they say, meh, no, that's the Americans. I think they said JP Morgan, one brand, one small, you know, spin off of JP Morgan, you know, looked at it for a little while and then decided, forget it, this kind of thing. But they're terrified that the Chinese might come and do it and that the Chinese might pay off local warlords and make deals enough and somehow achieve what the stability that we could never achieve and would somehow be willing to invest the amounts of capital necessary to develop those resources and extract them. And then, of course, the real lesson here is that. Wealth is not a zero-sum game, and it's good for China to have access to resources. The wealthier they are, the wealthier mankind is. That's okay. That just means more for us to trade with them later. And, you know, they specifically cite in the recent Council on Foreign Relations piece, uh, Foreign Affairs Journal, they specifically cite, I mean, they don't say we must block them, but they, you know, really, that's what they're talking about, the worry of the possible ultimate success of the China Belt and Road Policy, where the Chinese want to build this system of highways and railways and electric lines and God knows what, 
you know, supposedly someday from Shanghai to Lisbon and, you know, all the way across Eurasia. And the Americans are just terrified of this because it means that they lose influence. That is the American government. But the American people had nothing to lose. I mean, I think, I guess I could be proved wrong when some, the golden horde comes pouring down the highway and I have to change my mind or something. But it seems like this could probably be one of the best things that ever happened to mankind, that you could transport goods and services and human beings across Eurasia in a few days travel on, you know, some infrastructure like that. It seems like the possibilities are endless for the future betterment of mankind if that was to be made possible. But instead, the Americans, you know, would rather cut off humanity's nose to spite their face kind of thing, it seems like to me. You know, the hell do I care about China having a commercial empire? You know? Well, it's. That's really interesting you bring that part. I, I actually haven't heard that. Um, I don't know if you br actually brought that up in your book, but... Um, yeah, it's in there. It's at, at the end. Um, in, I think it's during uh, in Madison McMaster's War there okay. where they are quite open about how, yeah, we, we at the very least, we've got to keep some permanent bases because they don't really say exactly what they're going to do with them, but because of the China Belt and Road policy. I mean, what are they saying? Well, we want to bomb it. We want them to not even try to build it because we're here. That's what they're really saying, right? Well, it does make me wonder then if the if the sort of the grand chessboard, you know, philosophy that you that you show in your book is actually partly what's influencing this then, because maybe that is. I mean, I, I actually have not read that book. I probably should, but you know, is your interpretation of what he's saying in that book about you know sort of that? why we need to control that region. Do you think he was also thinking about it in terms of sort of making sure we have a hegemonic sort of control over a region and we could sort of, you know, you know, um, I'm not sure if I'm describing that yes, correctly, but that's absolutely right. No. Okay. I mean, the deal is this. So the Soviet union's gone. America already ruled two thirds of the world. Now the Soviet bloc, I mean, really, we, the U.S. had broken China away from the Soviet Union back in the 70s anyway. But now China is basically friendly and not too obstructionist or anything. The Soviet Union has dissolved. And so then the question for a grand strategist like Brzezinski in the 1990s is, so what do we do with it all? Because look at where we are. We're in North America. We are basically England Jr. here now taking over their empire and we rule the world by way of the seas. We dominate the seas from far away in the new world. Well, so how do you dominate Eurasia forever and maintain what he calls primacy, hegemony, that is dominance on such a scale, dominance over the planet, dominance to such a degree that no near peer competitor, as the neocons put it, would ever even really try to challenge us. In, especially in terms of military strength that will be so far ahead that they won't even bother attempting to to uh, match us. And and also, of course, you know, strategic positions, including basing and all across Eurasia in order to. You know, have as much influence as they can and to prevent really Russia, I think, was what he was mostly concerned about from being the dominant force in their own part of the world. and so then, you know, dominating as much of Central Asia as possible was part of that. And I think it's interesting that he really thought at the time, he writes in there at the time, that America's interest was backing the Pakistanis, their Taliban, Pashtun, 
sidekicks. He doesn't say them specifically, but that who's that's who he's talking about. In in Afghanistan, we should be backing the Pakistani Chinese axis, including the Taliban. And we're we need to do this. Pardon me. We need to do this in order to keep the Russians, the Iranians, and the Indians out. But now what are we doing? We're fighting a war for Russia's friends, for Iran's friends, and for India's friends in Afghanistan for the exact opposite end. And we're trying to limit the influence of Pakistan and China behind them. And so, you know, in other words, just keep adding time to the Washington clock. We've always been at war with Eurasia. It's really that simple. They can just flip back and forth. Sometimes we're on this side, sometimes we're on that side. As long as there's somebody we've got to stop there, then let's do it. So in the whole 1990s, the Bill Clinton government supported Saudi Arabia and Pakistan in their support for the Taliban. And in fact, as I talk about in the book, they didn't want to see a negotiated settlement. They wanted to see the Taliban win the war outright against the Northern Alliance and consolidate monopoly power over the country because they wanted to build a pipeline from Tajikistan through and cut out Iran and then go through from Afghanistan through Pakistan to the port of Karachi. And I'm not saying that they're still trying to build this pipeline because I think that they know now uh, the same thing I just said about the security situation just will not allow it. Your pipeline will never pump oil because there's always going to be a hole in it. So why bother? But at that point anyway, they thought, you know, this is perfectly fine. We'll go ahead and support the rise of the Taliban if it'll help us limit the influence of the Russians. So just like with everything else, if we were talking about Iraq or anywhere else, this is always the American politician before his fault. And you can always trace it back to Wilson or <laughs> Theodore Roosevelt or whoever you want. Always, always creating new problems trying to, or in the name of, I should say, cleaning up the problems from the last intervention. Absolutely. And I should probably r- wrap it up pretty soon. Um, but I wanted you to, you know, add any final thoughts you had to this discussion. Um, but I guess let's, let's also end it with uh, where we are now in this country, which is the Trump administration. Um, and you write, in June of 2016, Obama lifted restrictions on U.S. ground troops fighting insurgents. Under the new rules, airstrikes will no longer have to be justified as, justified as necessary to defend American troops reported the New York Times. United States commanders will now be slowed, or sorry, will now be allowed to use air power against the Taliban when they see fit. Pentagon and administration officials said, American forces will also be permitted to accompany regular Afghan troops into combat against the Taliban. Um, I guess it sounds like you're saying that Obama I mean, you're not just saying it, you're stating facts about what Obama did right before he left office, um, that Obama greased the skids for even further escalations in Afghanistan by President Trump instead of, you know, instead of sort of pivoting in the direction of, I want the next president to de-escalate. I mean, it didn't even seem like there was messaging or sort of the symbolism of that in place at that point. Um, What is your take on that? Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, those specific part that you're referring to there is really a reflection of America's Syria policy, which went completely uh, haywire. I mean, they they've kept it up. Don't get me wrong. 
but it completely blew up in their face in 2014 when the ISIS group became a place. And they rolled into Western Iraq and seized it, and uh, including Mosul, Fallujah, Ramadi, uh, Tikrit, and Baji, et cetera, et cetera. And so it was a real problem. And Obama, you know, a couple of months, I guess a month later, uh, launched a massive air war to, again, reverse the consequences of his last intervention. And so at that point, then anybody who was declaring himself a part of ISIS, no matter where they were, were basically up for grabs. So as soon as they uh, started calling themselves ISIS, or I shouldn't say up for grabs, but up for looser rules of engagement, go ahead and get them. We've declared on ISIS across, war on ISIS across the region, not just in uh, Iraq and Syria. So if they're in Iraq or in Syria, it's one authorization, go ahead and bomb them, or at least de facto, I guess it was two separate ones, but still. Um, and then the same for Libya, where they've done strikes against self-declared ISIS targets there. And it was the same kind of thing here, even though, as I told you, they're still just indigenous resistance fighters is all they really are. But they fit into the narrative perfectly. So the Americans like to play that up. And then, you know, as far as loosening the restrictions on airstrikes in support of the Afghan National Army that you're referring to there, it's a matter of desperation. And they're out there. They've got no good air cover. There's an Afghan Air Force, but it's not like it's readily available to back up infantry on the ground on a regular basis the way it is when you have American soldiers out there covered by drones and stuff like that. So they're having a much harder time. They're dying at a rate of 5,000 a year over there, the Afghan National Army in their fight against the insurgency. And so, you know, I mean, I don't know exactly what Obama was doing, right? He got his, he got his promise from Petraeus that he's going to have the Taliban negotiating and doing as they're told by 2011, then that never came true, right? So then he said, well, I guess we're just going to do targeted strikes and we're going to keep building up the Afghan army. And then, but definitely though, definitely by the end of 2014, we're gone. So Afghan army and government, you better listen, we're leaving at the end of 2014. So you better be ready. But then of course they weren't ready. So he just stayed. And that was the end of that. And, you know, more or less, nobody cared. It wasn't really a political problem for him. He got to run as, you know, on the theory that he had, and they didn't make too much of this, but they, it was part of the campaign of 2012 that he had won and ended the war in Afghanistan. The, the drawdown was almost complete from the surge and the war was won and all that. But by the end of his presidency, you know, they control at least a solid 40% of the country in the daytime and 60% at night. And, you know, unless you're really going to pull the troops out and not mind a fall of Saigon moment, you know, right as you leave an office, that kind of thing, you leave enough troops to keep Saigon from falling. That's it. And so that's what he did. He left, you know, basically enough of their own force protection and enough to prevent anybody from really marching on the capital city and seizing it and then left it up to the new president to decide who I'm sure he assumed was going to be Hillary. And she could go ahead and do her surge and rehire Petraeus and do what she wanted if she wanted. And that was where he left it. But it was either that or lose. Right now, and this is our real problem with the American politics and the Donald Trump administration, is that they can stay forever. They can stay and keep fighting forever. I mean, until the dollar breaks anyway. They can basically prolong the war against the Taliban. Uh, as long as they stay, they'll never completely lose. And now, and this is all reflected in Donald Trump's speech. Um, he says, and this is not true, you and I know better, 
But he says that Obama ever left Iraq, and that's what created the rise of ISIS, even though, no, it was Obama's support for ISIS in Syria or for the Islamic State and the al-Nusra Front and their other ally groups, uh, ISI, as it was called. Not direct support for ISI, but still. De facto, anyway, even for, for three, four years there, uh, from the start of the war in 2011, that's what led to the rise of the Islamic State. But the narrative in D.C. is that, no, it's because he ever pulled out of Iraq. And Trump cited that specifically in his speech himself, holding it against Obama. See what happens when you leave Iraq. And so the lesson is he can't ever leave, especially this is only just barely past the first half of his first year in office. So think about the politics of if he pulled everybody out right now. And then from now on, anytime anything bad happened in Afghanistan, including the fall of the government in the capital city and all that, he's going to have Lindsey Graham and John McCain saying, see, you shouldn't have pulled the troops out. See, it's a disaster. See, it's all your fault. And why put up with that when all you have to do is make sure that there's about 10 or 15,000 guys there enough to stave off total catastrophe. Left and right are preoccupied with other issues. And so keep coasting. That, you know, ended up being Obama's strategy after he ended the surge was just try not to mention it very much and hope that even if it doesn't go away, at least it won't get too much worse. And, you know, politically speaking, I think, to be perfectly honest, writing that book was a fool's errand because unless we have Ron Paul in there, there's not a man in D.C. and Ron Paul ain't even in D.C. anymore and he's in his 80s now, so forget it. But there's not a man in Washington, D.C. that would really tell the Joint Chiefs of Staff, you guys can all go to hell. This war is over. Over. And if you don't like it, not only can you resign, you're fired. Get the hell out. We are doing this. And if you assassinate me tomorrow, I don't care. We are doing this. Your orders are the war is over. Anything short of that, and it's going to continue. And that's, as you and I know, is not going to happen. Donald Trump, for him, it's a far easier out to go ahead and get more people killed to cost himself the political embarrassment of and look how easy it would have been for him to say hey this is all obama and bush's fault don't blame me if the bush obama government in Kabul falls it ain't my fault he could have said that and instead he now has taken it on uh to see it through to the end in other words to add more time to the washington clock and just keep it going yeah it's i mean i guess i can't say it's surprising but um He'd made some very strong statements, which you show, you know, you quote in your book. I think they're from Twitter, mostly about Afghanistan um, that show that he was is actually one of the issues that he seemed most passionate about in terms of foreign policy, um, even more so than Iraq. So, uh, yeah, it really doesn't bode well for the future. I hate to end on such a down note because I really should like give some kind of at least half ass call to action that. Hey, you know, the American people hated this and really wanted it over. We could have our way, but it's a matter of priorities. In fact, I end the book with this to give it all away for you here. That remember 2013 when at least a lot of people with power, not all of them, but a lot of D.C. wanted to bomb the government in Damascus, Syria. And the right wingers came out with the leftists, not so much the liberals. Thanks a lot, guys. But uh, the libertarians, the right wingers, all the talk radio land. All the guys who love George Bush's war the most, they all were against it. They all said, no way. A bunch of soldiers put out YouTubes where they were holding up a piece of paper covering their face, but said, I didn't join the Marine Corps to fight for al-Qaeda in Syria and this kind of thing. And in fact, Obama told Congress, vote your conscience, which means that's orders to the whip that don't whip the party and make them vote 
my way. Go ahead and tell them they don't have to. That's what that means. You don't have to vote my way. In other words, please don't. I don't want to do it either. And so I really think that that's an example. And I know the House of Commons had already voted no in the UK and that, you know, Obama really was kind of never really meant to draw that red line the way he did in the first place. And I think as we know from Seymour Hersh's reporting, he knew it was a false flag Turkish Al-Qaeda attack anyway, and he really didn't want to do it, I don't think. But still, uh, if change it. Say he really did want to do it. The polls had like 80-something percent against it. I mean, there was real pressure. And I remember Jake Tapper sweating on CNN. What can the president do to convince the people that we've got to do this? We'll be right back. You know, like it was just the pressure was on them. The people said no. The country said no, and they couldn't deny it. They couldn't avoid it. They couldn't ignore it. They couldn't say, well, yeah, but we're the grownups and we know what to do. They had to face the fact that it was unanimous among the people between Bangor and San Diego that no, you can't. And that was it. I mean, in in heavily Republican districts, too. There's just no question. And part of that was they didn't trust Obama, the right wingers. And part of that was, you know, I don't know. but. Uh, maybe what they learned about the role of the Al-Nusra front there. But anyway, I, I think even if it's not perfect, I think it is a strong example of the power of people to have an influence over this government, even on an issue of war and peace, which they claim that only experts get to decide this stuff. But, um, you know, I think ultimately the people get the government that they insist upon. As Ron Paul said, even in the Soviet Union, when the people finally said enough is enough, I'm not carrying this thing on my back anymore. It fell apart. That was it. And so ultimately it is our responsibility. Hate to say it. That was a positive moment, you know, as awful as the situation in Syria still is. Um, <clears throat> at least that showed that, you know, we, we can shift the opinion very quickly in DC, even when there seems to be a inevitable, you know, war uh, looming. So, you know, I always hate to plug Amazon when someone has a book out, but is there somewhere that you would prefer um, people obtain your book at other than Amazon? Well, I'll tell you what, we're doing a fun drive at the Libertarian Institute and anybody who donates $50 or more gets a signed copy. So I'll be getting it from Amazon, but then I'll be sending it to you. And uh, you'll be helping me to promote the book to others because that's where all this money is going is for me to send out copies of books and for me to travel to try to give talks and get interviews done to try to promote this thing. So for those of you who are into it, uh, that's sure a way that you could help support. And that what's the URL for that website? Libertarianinstitute.org slash support. Foolsarand.us, by the way, if you want to find it easily, it's just foolsarand.us. I got a great little website that a fan of the show made. Proud of this website. It's really great. This guy Harley made it for me. And you can find his business information at the bottom of the page. But it's foolsarand.us. It has a great picture of the cover picture there. And it has all the blurbs from Daniel Ellsberg and Ron Paul and Patrick Coburn and all the great people who blurbed it for me. I've read all the the blurbs from from Lots of uh, respectable people, Daniel Ellsberg, uh, Phil Giraldi, uh, Gareth Porter. There's so many, it's such a flood of positivity over it. And I just wanted to mention, again, um, as I already mentioned this in the intro, but you have been doing anti-war radio since 2003, and you're already up to over 4,500 episodes. So you've been quite dedicated to this. A lot of people have noticed that over the years, obviously, so I think it's very important that people understand the entire context, 
you know, of what's happened in Afghanistan. So, well, thanks a lot. Um, you know, that's why I was able to write this book is just because I have been paying attention to it this whole time and interviewing the very best journalists and writers about it and all that. So I thought I had a pretty good idea of the story I wanted to write when I started outlining it. And then I read probably 10 or 15 or 20 something books. Uh, yeah, more like 15 or 20 something books about when I was about halfway through, I stopped to read a lot more and get a lot more stuff right and flesh it out a little bit better. So, um, you know, I, I don't speak the language. I don't have a PhD. I, I'm not a world traveler, but, uh, I do have really good access to a lot of great experts and journalists and writers. And I have been focused on the one issue, even if I haven't been writing about it all this time, I absolutely have been focused on it and interviewing the best experts about it all this time. And so, and you'll see that reflected in the footnotes too, that, you know, I learned this or that from interview, you know, an interview that I did back in 2005 or back in 2007 or back, you know, when it was relevant, not just after the fact stuff. So, yeah. And then, and it has great, um, references. It's all, um, sourced in the book in a very detailed fashion. So, um, you know, if someone is curious about something you bring up, it's very easy to, to find where it's from. And oftentimes it's, it's from your own radio station. Uh, I mean your own radio show. Yeah. Everyone check out a fool's errand. Thank you so much for talking with me today, Scott. I really appreciate it. Thanks very much for having me, Robbie. I appreciate it too.